I was saying, I think, when I, I if, if you haven't sense. changed anything, when I read through it, it made sense. Yeah, okay, perfect, perfect. It, it just kind of moves chronologically. Yeah, Starts yeah that, the was, base, that was the idea. Builds out the superstructure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, I, uh, that, that's called, it's called uh, dialectical uh, language arts. <laughs> we should uh, make an entire episode that's just Adam Curtis style, where after every yeah, paragraph, it's like, but he forgot about <laughs> one thing. <laughs> but something extraordinary happened. Yeah. Forgot about. Forgot every, about... Paragraph, yeah, every paragraph begins with something extraordinary happened. But then, ends with, but he forgot about one thing. Something extraordinary happened. Yeah, and then and then just say the word like uh, power, like what. what the, he assumed the the new power was arising, but he forgot about something very key. The old power was still there, <laughs> turning away. <laughs> you know, I love Adam Curtis, I, and I do. I could not get through kicking it out of my head, but I, I do like. I've enjoyed some of his stuff in the past. And, yeah, you know, and I and I think he is getting at something, but sometimes he he really is proof that if you put it behind a British accent, everything sounds profound. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, no, totally, like totally. The dumbest <laughs> possible point will sound profound. Well, so and, and he just makes it. it so cool because like he like he, I mean he is like the the such a vibe checker. Like I mean the music mm-hmm. is just like so on point. The way that he just like kind of just like really just takes you in with like the aesthetics the visuals like the uh you know the music while articulating something that you broadly agree with you know yeah, like yeah. more than like maybe a liberal or conservative would agree with so it's just like you know if you take like a take an edible and like you know like watch it you're mm-hmm. just like oh vice but then you just hear him and he's literally just like old power we think it will go away and new power arises <laughs> however the the people they don't realize that old power has been here all along. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what? They thought the old power would go away, but they forgot about one thing. They it won't. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, they it's forgot good. about one thing. Managing with technology has become the dominant mode. And when you leave mass politics out from the people, that replaces the mass politics. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Love the man. Love the man. The computer replaces the people in many ways. <laughs> in Labor's untold story, Richard Boyer and Herbert Moraes comment on the aftermath of World War One. The war marked the end of an era for the United States. Until American entry into the war, there were many who still thought it possible somehow to return the country to a non-monopolistic middle way, some modern version of Jeffersonianism, in which none was either very rich or very poor. However, with the war's end, there was small chance for a return to the simplicities of Jeffersonianism. For better or for worse, American monopoly was in the saddle, stronger than before. His foreign rivals badly shaken and coming increasingly under its control through financial need. As never before, the whole world beckoned to it as a prize to be won. It was a dazzling prospect. 
Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the show where we get to know America a little better through the two opposite and contradictory sides of the dialectic, reading and podcasting. Also known as Praxis. <laughs> so I'm Brian. <laughs> and I'm Munya. <laughs> and longtime <laughs> listeners of the show will be shocked, shocked I say, <laughs> To hear that we're taking a bit of a diversion away from Greg Grandin's The End of the Myth what? today. Uh, to maybe try and lay out the class politics of the Inner Warriors. We gotta do it. And hey, do not worry. We will be back on our grand and bullshit next week talking about the psychological effects of the global crisis of capitalism that came to be known as the Great Depression. You might have heard of it. But <laughs> I, I, I was into the the panic of 1893. You probably haven't heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're 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 into the panic of 1893. N- name name five songs. <laughs> name five major uh, demographic categories that whose life expectancy collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know. Before we get into all that, uh, we wanted to lay out the landscape of the United States in the decades between the two world wars. A little historical background to ground our conversation for next week, if you will. Our story begins in the charnel houses of World War I. Faced with an imperial frontier that had closed, the leading capitalist powers of the world saw no way forward except through the redividing of imperial spoils. Faced with the crisis of capitalism, they opted to turn Europe into a meat grinder, into which they shoveled the children of the working class. The shock and horror that came from combining industrial capitalism and war cannot be overstated. Russian generals, stuck in the Middle Ages, charged their cavalry into entrenched German machine gun nests, surrounded by barbed wire. There were half a million French and German casualties over six days in the Battle of the Marne. England alone suffered 57,000 casualties in a single day in the Battle of the Somme. Whole families were wiped out in an instant, with only fading memories left behind, their bodies having been dumped in unmarked mass graves. The countryside of France was turned into a moonscape. Soldiers died by the millions from machine gun fire, artillery shells, splayed over razor wire, or choking on their own vomit from poison gas attacks. In total, an estimated 17 million people died over the four years of the war. This is all to say that World War I was a bonanza for the American capitalist class. (laughs) Winning! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Times could not be better. I mean, like, really, just let the good times roll. (laughs) That was the entire World War I years for the American capitalist class was just let the good times roll. Yeah. Yeah. German chemical patents were seized by the United States government and handed over to DuPont. The value of these patents was immeasurable as German chemical companies were leagues ahead of their American rivals. Company profits for DuPont rose from $6 million in 1914 to a whopping $82 million just two years later in 1916. The U.S. Navy took over all the patents for radio technology the height of high-tech at the time, and fast-tracked radio research with massive state subsidies and the use of public universities. After the war, the patents were given over to the newly formed RCA, a gift of incredible value. 
and as in previous wars, graft reached whole new levels. In one case, over $1 billion was handed over to private industry for planes that were never delivered. The boom provided by wartime profiteering focused on the minds of the capitalist class on creating a movement to push for lower taxes and deregulation. When Warren Harding took office in 1921, he had a 10-member cabinet with a collective net worth of over $600 million. His Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, was the second richest man in the country, and he immediately went about cutting taxes for the rich. Mellon's plan reduced taxes for the top income bracket from 50% to 25%, while reducing the lowest bracket from 4% to 3%. See, everybody won. Yeah, see, they all (laughs) went down. Yeah, all the arrows went down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Truly for the people, if you think about it. You just don't respond, just think about it first before you respond. Think about (laughs) it. Congressman William Connery of Massachusetts commented, quote, When I see a provision in this Mellon tax bill, which is going to save Mr. Mellon himself $800,000 on his income tax and his brother $600,000 on his, I cannot give it my support. This redistribution of wealth upwards was paired with a class war waged downwards. This class war was aided by the effort to build domestic support for U.S. entry into the First World War. The war was very unpopular in the United States among working people. I mean, after I described the effects of it, it's a shock. Nobody wanted to just yeah. go do that. I want to be the guy on the razor, like strung across the razor wire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're all cheering for it. <laughs> Mustard gas, send me in. At the beginning of 1917, the head of the National Civic Foundation complained that, quote, Neither working men nor farmers were taking any part or interest in the efforts of the security or defense leagues or other movements for national preparedness. When the U.S. declared war on Germany in 1917, Woodrow Wilson called for a million men to join the military and make the world safe for democracy. Only 73,000 volunteered. (laughs) Owned. (laughs) Congress voted overwhelmingly for a draft to fill the gap. (laughs) Thanks, Congress. Those are do-nothing Congress. Newspaper man George Creel was brought in by the Wilson administration to form the Committee on Public Information. I mean, Committee on Public Information is already some... (laughs) That's scary shit. That is already dark. Yeah. But to form the Committee on Public Information to turn the tide of opinion in favor of war. According to committee member Edward Bernays, quote, Every known device of persuasion and suggestion was employed to sell our war aims to the American people. Reports that Germans were beasts and Huns were generally accepted. The most fantastic atrocity stories were believed. The propaganda effort was colossal. 75,000 speakers were assembled to give 750,000 pro-war speeches in 5,000 cities and towns. Editorials, articles, cartoons, and advertisements were placed in newspapers all over the country, including 745 foreign newspapers that argued for the war. Samuel Gompers, the conservative head of the AFL, was brought in by Creel to form the American Alliance for Labor and Democracy with branches in 164 cities, which tried to sell workers on the war. The passage of the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918 made opposition to the war and criticism of the government a crime. 
Labor leader Eugene Debs was arrested under the Espionage Act in June of 1918 for giving a speech which he stated, quote, The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. Yes, in good time we are going to sweep into power in this nation and throughout the world. We are going to destroy all enslaving and degrading capitalist institutions and recreate them as free and humanizing institutions. For this, he was given 10 years in prison. A socialist named Charles Shank was arrested in 1917 for handing out flyers that stated the Conscription Act was, quote, a monstrous deed against humanity in the interests of the financiers of Wall Street. After being convicted under the Espionage Act, he appealed his case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Ruling against Shank, Justice Holmes famously said that speech could be limited where it presented a, quote, clear and present danger, and that the First Amendment could not protect a man, quote, falsely shouting fire in a theater. Historian Howard Zinn writes that Shank's act was more akin to, quote, shouting, not falsely, but truly, to people about to buy tickets and enter a theater, that there was a fire raging inside. Over 2,000 people were imprisoned under the Espionage and Sedition Acts for opposing the war. Yeah, it's very funny, the, like, shouting fire in a theater or whatever, which is this thing that, you know, people say or whatever. It's become an, an idiom or whatever, if you will. Um it's funny that this comes from a, this whole thing comes from a guy basically being like, "Hey guys, I think World War One might be bad." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should, yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't do that. <laughs> the Department of Justice formed the American Protective League in June of 1917, boasting around 100,000 members and made up of the leading men of the community, namely bankers, railroad men, and other business elites. The league hunted out cases of disloyalty for the Justice Department. The League went through people's mail and broke into their homes and offices to gather evidence of disloyalty. During the war, the League claimed to have found 3 million cases of disloyalty. Cities formed their own loyalty boards to monitor the behavior of their citizens. In Seattle, local officials led a mass arrest of, quote, disorderly women who were then imprisoned in a makeshift jail downtown in order to protect the health and morals of soldiers stationed at nearby Fort Lewis. Release was conditioned on a blood test and an invasive medical exam conducted by city and army doctors. Funny story about that, you know, quote unquote, quarantine or, you know, however they just decided to describe it was they brought in um, like machine equipment, like garment equipment and typewriters and things like that to try and train these uh, disorderly women in proper working class skills so they could go out, yeah, leave jail and get proper wow. class jobs. And they apparently... They're in this like uh, I think th they're on the third floor of a building downtown, and they had like a little mini riot and threw all the equipment out the window, <laughs> smashing. Oh hell the yeah! Below. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Yeah, this girl's rock, man. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, that's badass. amazing. <laughs> in New York City, the American Defense Society was formed, and in 1917, the ADS created the American Vigilante Patrol. This was a group of more than 100 thugs who roamed the streets of New York looking to, quote, put an end to seditious street oratory, according to the New York Herald. This unprecedented campaign of propaganda and repression would not remain bound by the war effort. As Edward Bernay would later write, quote, 
Business realized that the great public could now be harnessed to their cause as it had been harnessed during the war to the national cause. And the same methods could do the job. In 1919, 4 million workers went on strike across the country. The National Association of Manufacturers and local Chamber of Commerce worked together to flood newspapers, schools, and churches with propaganda, declaring the strikes the work of communist foreign agitators from Moscow. (laughs) More things change, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The federal government joined in with the Justice Department launching a series of arrests and deportations of suspected radicals known as the Palmer Raids after U.S. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. The intelligence for these raids was gathered by the Justice Department's newly formed General Intelligence Division, the federal government's first Red Squad under the leadership of a 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover used the card catalog system, maintaining surveillance over suspected subversives that had been developed during the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. In a single day in January of 1920, Hoover used his surveillance network to launch raids in 33 cities, arresting 4,000 suspected radicals. Based on this experience, Hoover was made the first director of the FBI in 1924, a role he held until his death in 1972. Good, we're closing the book on that guy. I'm not going to hear from him again. Oh, goodness <laughs> gracious, man. That occupation of the Philippines was very important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, really it seems overlooked. like it does all... Yeah, it is. It's so, it's so overlooked because it really... A lot of stuff even... It feels like when you talk about like roots and like really kind of key moments where like I think... Uh, moment was instructive for the rest to happen philippines is always there mm-hmm. yeah and it's interesting if you look in like uh in you know zen's the people's history of the United States, if you look in the chapter on world war one uh he talks about soldiers that resisted fighting the war who were drafted right and refused to mm-hmm. fight and there were several investigations of you know torture being used against these soldiers and the one that he cites specifically and gives like a big, you know, long quote from in the investigation, the soldiers are essentially waterboarded, right? They're like you again, use torture techniques wow. from the Philippine occupation, wow. right? I mean, it really was like a critical moment for American imperialism, but also like American policing at home. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. The Red Scare and the anti-communist hysteria of the time that it bred meant that there was little protest against the massive redistribution of wealth upwards. The income tax would not be the only piece of the tax structure to be tilted towards the wealthy. The excess profits tax and the gift tax were both repealed altogether, while the estate tax maximum rates were cut in half. In 1920, the Supreme Court ruled that corporate dividends paid in stock were not taxable. The federal income tax was riddled with loopholes, and Secretary Mellon himself admitted that most millionaires had rearranged their affairs so that they paid little or no taxes. This rearrangement had predictable results. As wealth was funneled upwards, there was a merger boom as industries consolidated across the board. In 1919, there were 89 mergers that involved 527 companies, and by 1929, the numbers had jumped to 201 mergers involving 1,259 companies. The corporate share of national wealth jumped from 10% to 30% through the 1920s, and the 100 largest corporations came to control half of the total U.S. net industrial income. 
but no tax burden to encourage reinvestment of capital and production. Economic elites increasingly hoarded their money or put it in play in the stock market, where speculating could net massive gains in the short run. As a result, workers' wages remained stagnant during the decade, and unemployment actually saw a net gain of 650,000 unemployed by 1927. The stock market boomed, however, and new offerings grew from $30 million per month in 1926 to $1 billion per month in 1929. Shock that our whole vision of the decade is informed by stonks went up. (laughs) (laughs) One billion. I mean, seriously, 30 30 million to one billion is like is a pretty mind blowing number, especially to just have that happen in three years. Yeah, seems uh, seems like something unhealthy might be happening. Yeah. Yeah. The market became rife with Ponzi schemes, artificially inflated stock known as pump and dump schemes. Betting houses where bets were placed on whether stocks would rise or fall, known as bucket shops, and the selling of fraudulent stocks in boiler rooms. Speculative markets were also fed by the rise in consumer credit. In order to bridge the gap between stagnant wages and the rising price of consumer goods, easy credit was made available. Soon, predatory lenders began pumping up the credit market with bad loans, particularly in housing, and then selling the debt on the market. Oh, well, I've never heard of that. Um, (laughs) Stop us if you've heard this story before. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, people are at the edge of their seats. Where is this going to lead? Yeah, huh? (laughs) What could possibly happen when 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 that sequence of events goes down? (laughs) The result of all this activity was that by 1929, the top 1% of households controlled a whopping 44.2% of the nation's total wealth. The speculative boom could not last forever, though, and on a Tuesday in 1929, reality intervened. An increasing quantity of failed loans, particularly highly volatile call loans, which had reached a value of $8 billion by 1929, led to qualitative quake in the stock market. And before the day was up, a run had begun. The stock market lost 24% of its value in the first two days alone. Black Tuesday marked the beginning of the Great Depression. Within three years, over 5,000 banks closed and a huge number of businesses followed. Industrial production fell by half or 50% and one-quarter to one-third of the workforce was unemployed. The Great Depression was a worldwide economic crisis. The fundamentals of the crisis were universal if the details differed. The world economy had fallen into what John Maynard Keynes called a crisis of underconsumption, or what traditional 19th century economists (coughs) called a crisis of overproduction. By any name, the relevant facts were the same. Stagnant wages had been paired with massive increases in industrial capacity. So while the capitalists accumulated more industrial overhead, workers found themselves increasingly unable to purchase the goods they created. This contradiction had been temporarily ameliorated by increasingly liberal infusions of credit to consumers. When the debt bubble finally got so big that it had to collapse under its own weight, the whole system was thrown into chaos. The stagnation of the imperial struggle the result of a standoff amongst the imperial powers, not a step back from imperialism itself, had taken hold after World War I, 
and countries no longer had the safety valve of new markets to absorb excess production and provide new capital. The complete collapse of the German economy cut off another valuable avenue of capital extraction for the victors of the war. In essence, the accumulation of capital at the top, the ultimate goal of capitalism, had created a foundation so shaky, so rotten at the bottom, that a massive collapse was inevitable. The collapse of the American stock market set off a chain of dominoes that rippled through the world of foreign investment and began taking down overseas banking houses, exposing the internal weaknesses of the economies of Western Europe and setting off a worldwide crisis. The Roaring Twenties only roared for the richest Americans. For workers, the Depression of 1920 dealt a blow that few recovered from. In early 1929, before the crash, Two-thirds of families lived on an income below the poverty line of $2,000 per year. For the one-third of all families who lived on farms, conditions deteriorated quickly. Farm prices were cut in half between 1920 and 1921 and never recovered. From 1920 to 1929, the proportion of the national income going to farm families declined from 15% to 9%. As a result of declining farm prices, Farm land was farmed more aggressively. Fields were no longer allowed to go fallow, and there was an increase in the growth of soil-destroying cash crops like tobacco and cotton. Belief in an endless frontier combined with the rapacious greed of capitalism had doomed American farming. As Greg Grandin writes, quote, Assuming infinity, Americans didn't farm so much as strip-mine the soil. When the effects of more intense farming was combined with an extended drought in 1933 to 1934, the Dust Bowl was created. Soil blew off the plains, destroying farmland and adding to an already deteriorating living conditions. For industrial workers in the city, conditions were not much better. Hiring was stagnant to non-existent in everything but auto. Wages didn't budge from their post-war levels, and the price of consumer goods began climbing quickly. Industrialists chose to speed up their workforces rather than hire more people on. As a result, output per man hour for manufacturing workers rose from 44.6 in 1920 to 72.5 in 1929, with almost all the extra production going into profits rather than wages. Living conditions in the city were tough, And in New York, over 2 million workers lived in tenements condemned as fire traps. In 1928, New York Congressman Fiorello LaGuardia commented after touring the poor districts of the city, quote, I confess I was not prepared for what I actually saw. It seemed almost incredible that such conditions of poverty could really exist. While workers took hits across the board, the creation of the Communist Party USA in 1919 gave the labor movement a stable left wing to counter the conservative trade union and segregationist politics of the AFL. Bolstered by the success of the Russian Revolution, the CPUSA grew rapidly, with membership peaking around 66,000 in the 1930s. Still, despite their relatively small numbers, the CPUSA would form the backbone of the left in the United States. Perhaps the greatest contribution of the CPUSA to the labor movement would come from the 1922 meeting of the Third Internationale, a collection of communist and radical labor groups and political parties from around the world. 
at the meeting, it was determined that due to the special status of black workers as being super exploited, that they were required to play a major role in the American labor movement. It was the first major strike against the segregationist policies that had come to dominate American labor in the progressive era. The CPUSA would begin a conscious policy of bringing white and black workers together in a struggle not just for labor rights, but against racism. In 1931, the International Labor Defense, a legal defense organization created by the CPUSA, but open to all labor radicals, took up the case of the Scottsboro Boys, nine black teenagers framed for rape in Alabama. The ILD did more than fight for these kids' freedom. They made the trial a spectacle, exposing the violent racism of the Jim Crow regime for all the world to see. Mass rallies were held all around the country and the world, demanding the acquittal of the teenagers. The trial exposed the racism of the U.S. criminal justice system as the judge initially gave eight of the nine defendants the death penalty, the ninth being too young. Upon ILD appeal and mass outrage, the sentences were reduced to absurd jail terms ranging from 75 to 105 years. Despite the defeat in the courtroom, the trial and the organizing around it formed the foundation for the American Civil Rights Movement. Women were also able to make some strides forward when they gained the right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, only after 72 years of formal of a formal women's suffrage movement. Oof. <laughs> women Ugh. were finally declared full citizens, only 34 years after corporations were. Uh, <laughs> although... Black women, and let's be real, black men, would still have to wait. <laughs> yeah. Women, not content with just the right to vote, played an active part in the labor movement. In 1926, 16,000 textile workers, led predominantly by immigrant women, went on strike for better working and living conditions. Striking workers stayed out for months, fighting back police who beat them with clubs and tear gas. And I, I looked for it, I couldn't find it, but there's an amazing flyer from this time period it's an instructional flyer that the unions put out uh, teaching women how to fight the police. Like, wow. with, like photos of like grab that them by works. their hat and pull them down and shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is badass. <laughs> you get a poster of that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's what I was trying to find. I was like, maybe we could use that uh, for something. But striking textile workers. If you, by the way, if you're listening to this and you, and you know the flyer I'm talking about, definitely email us. Yeah. Striking textile workers in Tennessee caused a strike wave that swept into North Carolina in 1929. The union in Gastonia, North Carolina, consisted not only of large numbers of women, but it was also racially integrated. When the economic crash hit in 1929, it impacted workers the most. Unemployment rose out of control, and wages for those who were working plummeted. Andrew Mellon, the second richest man in the country, who served as Treasury Secretary for the entirety of the 1920s, told workers, quote, During a crisis, assets returned to their rightful owners as a wave of evictions and foreclosures swept the country. Henry Ford cynically opined, quote, The average man won't really do a day's work unless he is caught and can't get out of it. There's plenty of work to do if people would do it. A few weeks later, he laid off 60% of his workforce. And just to give you a sense of scale of what 60% of Ford is at the time, 
That's 75,000 people. So really what you're telling me is that in a time of economic crisis, uh, capitalists might, I don't know, cynically say that the real problem is that people just don't want to go to work. And that maybe they'll even say that while they're not only not hiring, but actually laying people off. In like mass quantities. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, mm. again, uh, it's crazy. They came up with one playbook in like 1830. Yeah. <laughs> they've, been, they've been rocking it ever since. And it works. Why would you, why would you change? They're you know? literally just doing like the, the play, the read option play in Madden and yeah. like the 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 defensive end or the guy who's like you know supposed to read just like bites every time and and the qb just gets a huge like game literally just spamming read option yeah that's when you get mad at your friend for spamming a play and your friend just looks at you and says well why don't you stop it then yeah stop it (laughs) (laughs) incredible we all have that friend yep (laughs) it's frequently me Uh, (laughs) not interested in waiting for help from the federal government workers took matters into their own hands unemployed councils were created all over the country with the goal of providing assistance strike support and aid to those facing eviction block committees were organized to move people back into their homes after police would throw people's possessions into the streets these committees would come and move it all right back in A 1932 article in the New York Times covering the eviction of a family in the Bronx captured the insurrectionary mood of the day. Quote, probably because of the cold, the crowd numbered only 1,000, although its unruliness equaled the throng of 4,000 that stormed the police in the first disorder of a similar nature on January 22nd. On Thursday, a dozen or more families are to be evicted unless they pay back rents. Inspector Joseph Leonary deployed a force of 50 detectives and mounted and foot patrolmen throughout the street as Marshal Louis Novick led 10 furniture movers into the building. Their appearance was the signal for a great clamor. Women shrieked from the windows. The different sections of the crowd hissed and booed and shouted invectives. Fighting began simultaneously in the house and in the street. The marshal's men were rushed on the stairs and only got to work after the policemen had driven the tenants back into their apartments. Oh, I was gonna say, this is kind of indicated there. Uh, this is not an uncommon thing to basically be like, you know what? Uh, we're we're all about to get evicted. Let's let the local unemployment council know <laughs> so they can come down and we'll just fight the fucking we'll fight the cops and the uh, landlord. Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mass demonstrations began to take place all over the country for jobs, food, and an end to evictions. In New York, 110,000 people packed Union Square in 1930 and were attacked by 25,000 police officers. The New York World described the melee, quote, Women struck the face with blackjacks, boys beaten by gangs of seven and eight policemen, and an old man backed into a doorway and knocked down time after time, only to be dragged to his feet and struck with fist and club. Detectives, some wearing reporters' cards and hat bands, many wearing no badges, running wildly through the crowd, screaming as they beat those who looked like communists. Men, with blood streaming down their faces, dragged into the temporary police headquarters and flung down to await the patrol wagons to cart them away. They probably just need a HR seminar. 
the yeah, NYPD. They, they, yeah, I, I think that they just need uh, sensitivity and uh, mm-hmm. implicit bias training. Yeah, they need implicit bias training. That would solve that. Yeah. In the spring and summer of 1932, veterans of World War I began assembling in Washington, D.C. as word of a great gathering, a bonus army, spread across the country like wildfire. More than 20,000 came from all over, hopping trains, riding in broken-down, overloaded cars and trucks, and even arriving on foot. Labeled the bonus army, they demanded that Congress pay them now the bonuses that they were due in 1945. By the way, that's hilarious to fucking basically like get people to go fight in World War One and be like, "Yeah, in exchange for doing this, we'll give you a bonus like 30 fucking years from now." <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. Just stepping foot on that battlefield probably gives you like a one yeah. in five chance of dying. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> <laughs> if you somehow make it back yeah. against all the odds, uh, you're just going to have to like wait a good 30 years to even yeah. maybe see that. Yeah, if you could survive those 30 years with the debilitating you know, injuries and illnesses yeah. that you got on the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> this country rocks. Yeah, it's and by so way, cool, dude. I, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I don't think that the U.S. actually paid it out in 1945 either. Uh, spoiler what alert. a shock they're not gonna pay it out now but yeah I don't yeah think they paid it out in 45 either like they use the that war as an excuse wild yeah if you ever told that you're gonna get a bonus in 30 years you're you're not getting that bonus you're fam. not that's not yeah. coming fam just write that right off let like, them cut the check within 12 yeah. months if, it's, if, it, if it ain't within the year forget about it yeah that's is that's not yours <laughs> nope a massive camp was set up as people housed themselves in tents, rickety shelters made of foul material, and abandoned buildings. Refusing to even talk with veterans, President Hoover called in the army. Four troops of cavalry, four companies of infantry, a machine gun squadron, and six tanks were assembled under the leadership of General Douglas MacArthur, Major Dwight Eisenhower, and George Patton. MacArthur advanced down Pennsylvania Avenue, tear-gassing the vets and burning down the buildings and tents as they went, as they went, eventually setting the whole camp ablaze. Thousands were injured, two veterans were shot and killed, and an 11-week-old baby died from tear gas. When MacArthur was asked by a reporter about a cavalryman who had sliced off the ear of a vet, MacArthur joked, quote, You don't slash with a saber, you lunge, as he acted out the motion for the cameras. Washington, D.C. Police Chief General Glassford uh, would later state of the event, quote, Some members of the wealthy classes looked upon the occupation of the nation's capital as a revolutionary action. President Hoover, who had never even bothered in three years of office to raise a hand to help out the people, rejoiced in his victory, stating, quote, A challenge to the authority of the United States has been met swiftly and firmly. After months of patient indulgence, the government met overt lawlessness as it always must be met. Such violence was not meted out against the veterans of World War I. U.S. was once again in the midst of a full-fledged class war, waged largely in one direction. Between 1933 and 1936, GM spent nearly a million dollars on labor spies and detectives, as did RCA, Bethlehem Steel, Standard Oil, Alcoa, and dozens of other leading American corporations. A Senate hearing revealed that millions of dollars were spent by corporations on tear gas, shotguns, automatic pistols, armored cars, fragmentation bombs, 
and submachine guns to attack strikers. The president of Federal Laboratories Incorporated. Anytime it has laboratories in the name, you know that they're up to evil shit. Dude, I mean, it just sounds evil. This is a fact, yeah. (laughs) It just, like, yeah. I'm looking at you, Dexter's Laboratory. I don't don't trust your ass. (laughs) Dexter's Laboratory and Bell Labs, up to the same activities. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What the fuck was Dexter really studying there anyway? What what, what kind of potions was he really making? (laughs) Why is he with that monster all the time, man? That's something sketchy. (laughs) The president of Federal Laboratories Incorporated told the Senate that he was a humanitarian for selling more gas than bullets because, quote, it was better to gas a striker than to kill him. (laughs) Cool. Awesome, dude. Historians, and you know what? The the U.S. probably believes that that is a humanitarian act. So Uh, That is literally the defense that SPD gave for their activities Mm -hmm. in the summer of 2020 when they gassed an entire neighborhood. When asked about that and like how inhumane that was, uh, literally violating the chemical weapons ban treaty, uh, they, the response of SPD of Carmen Best was, well, the alternative is that we shoot them. So yeah, what do you want to do? We'll violate the Geneva Convention and gas yeah. entire neighborhoods because we'll just kill them. That, that well, is just it, a very – I'm glad that that department like runs our entire city and really yeah. just the entire country. That is yeah, well, so yeah. cool. That's like every police department, right? And also, it shows the amazing mindset of police officers, which is there's two buttons, gas an entire neighborhood or just (laughs) open fire on the public. (laughs) Open season (laughs) on a ton of people and kill them. (laughs) Historians Richard Boyer and Herbert Moraes note that, quote, usually Young's salesmen set up gas guns right on the spot discharging them into picket lines as part of the free demonstration. One of young salesmen wrote back to the home office from a strike in San Francisco where he was plying the company's wares. Quote, I might mention that during one of the riots, I shot a long-range projectile into a group, the shell hitting one man and causing a fracture of the skull from which he has since died. As he was a communist... I have had no feeling in the matter, and I am sorry that I did not get more. He went on to state that the demonstration led to a massive order of weapons from all the surrounding businesses. Extremely cool. God, dude, what a crazy (laughs) note. Yeah, and this is, you know, a common refrain that you're going to hear in both the American labor movement, but uh, when we talk about fascism generally, is... Right-wing violence is done very out in the open. It's bragged about and things like that because there's literally no consequence to it. Yeah. I mean, this guy's literally like, hey, uh, just so you know, while I was on my business trip, I murdered somebody. Uh, ha ha ha, LOL. LMAO. Uh, yeah. <laughs> don't worry. That Don't worry. That so impressed the fucking business guys I was with. I also have a huge order now for the, the, the yeah. weapon that I just murdered Reading somebody with. Filet mignon tonight, honey. Yeah, feeling like Dom Draper for sure. Yeah, damn. (laughs) Incredible. So despite the violence in the streets, workers were not going to be intimidated by the police or the army. A strike wave of record proportions quickly took the country. A million and a half workers went on strike in 1934, growing in each subsequent year. 
1935, the Congress of Industrial Organizations split from the AFL and formed a radical labor alternative to the conservative union. The CIO was thick with communists and quickly set to the task of forming integrated unions and even launched a southern organizing drive. Up to this point, mass organizing in the South was considered to be impossible due to the violence and racism of the segregation regime. The CIO pushed to bring black and white workers together to find common cause, laying a foundation for the civil rights movement in the future. In 1936, 2,000 GM workers seized their auto plant and went on strike. The sit-down strike turned the oft-used tactic by management of locking workers out and turned it on its head, seizing the plant and denying management access to it. Police and the National Guard were called to break the strike, while 5,000 sympathetic workers surrounded the building for protection. Several efforts were made to seize the plant, but workers repelled the attacks with fire hoses. GM eventually had to settle and recognize the union. Yeah, and there's actually footage of the uh, sit-down strike of, of the police attacking the building that if oh, you wow. really hunt, you can find. In, in 1936, that's amazing. Yeah. And they literally are like using the fire hoses in the building and just like blowing the police off fucking ladders and shit. That's <laughs> like, so gangster, they're bro. Try- yeah, they're trying to storm it because the workers have like barricaded all the doors. The police are trying to like storm it like a fucking castle. Uh, the other thing they did oh, was they damn. made they made slingshots and they had all these bearings that were like ball bearings that were in mm-hmm. there, right? You know, that were mm-hmm. manufactured. So they built these slingshots and they would just fire ball bearings out of the windows. Oh. Of the cops. <laughs> people Dude. in the local yeah another part that rocks is they had some windows that were open and so people in the local community would come up and bring like food so there's all these videos of all these like you know like women from the local community who are just like fire lining food into the building Dang. so they can like maintain the siege it's truly one of the most badass things that's, that's, that's happened epic. in american labor it rocks the flint sit down strike is badass <laughs> man it really sees that shit that's crazy yeah In 1936, there were 48 such sit-down strikes. After the example set by GM workers in Flint, 1937 saw 477 sit-down strikes. Yeah, everybody saw that shit and was like, that's badass. Yeah, (laughs) it's fucking cool. In 1938, after only 50 years of organized effort on the part of the labor movement, the federal government finally passed a minimum wage law that included a provision banning child labor. I guess better late than never, huh? Yeah, seriously. Less, like, way less than 100 years uh, before this episode was recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Cool to think about. (laughs) Yeah. During the war years, workers flagrantly violated the strike ban and had over 14,000 strikes involving over 6.7 million workers. By the end of the war, union membership had ballooned to over 12 million. But perhaps the most important contribution of the CIO was its effort to break the color line by bringing labor organizing to the Jim Crow South. Cotton prices had plummeted after World War I, throwing Southern agriculture into turmoil. They then plunged to an all-time low after the stock market crashed in 1929. The cotton crash created conditions for small landholders to be turned into tenants of larger landholders, while current tenant workers of plantations were further marginalized, their well-being completely deteriorated. As historian Robin D.G. Kelly notes, quote, 
It is no coincidence, therefore, that black farmers straddling the line between tenancy and ownership formed the nucleus of Alabama's communist-led rural movement. Within cotton culture, there were two main production relations. Cash tenants were mostly white workers who leased lands for several years at a time and supplied their own farming materials like feed, fertilizer, and draft animals without supervision. Share tenants, on the other hand, worked on the landowner's land while the landowner provided most of the equipment and shelter. It was common for the landowner to advance cash, food, and even clothes to share tenants. The most common form of the share tenant structure in the South was sharecropping, where workers were paid with a portion of the crops they raised. All the furnishings the landowner provided the sharecropping tenants were deducted from their portion of the crop at extremely high interest rates. This systematically was shackling the predominantly black sharecroppers to the landowner and their demands. Along with spiraling debt, sharecropping perpetuated living conditions for tenants that bordered on intolerable. Landowners placed entire families in poorly constructed one maybe two-room shacks, usually without running water or adequate sanitary facilities. Living day-to-day -day on a diet of beans, molasses, a slab of hard pig fat, and cornbread. Unsurprisingly, most Southern tenants suffered from nutritional deficiencies, as pellagra and rickets became particularly common diseases in the Black Belt. Yeah, and it's really interesting for people that are hearing that and saying, Holy shit, that sounds awful, those conditions. Uh, if you are in the Washington, if you're in Washington State, so a lot of our listeners are, I strongly suggest that you drive east of the mountains mm -hmm. and go look into apple picking country, right? Go into the farm country out there. What you'll find is there's a lot of tenant housing out there for the migrant labor force. It looks exactly like this. It has yeah. not changed one bit in a hundred years. Um, and there have been strikes and things like that out there to try and improve it. Uh, and the, you know, farm owners out there have been of course dead set against it, but um, not a less change in agriculture. Pretty disgusting. Yeah. So gross. Shacks were placed near the edge of the plantation where families were separated two to three miles from one another. This plantation demography made open collective rebellion virtually impossible. Sharecroppers resorted to more individualized forms of resistance like theft, foot dragging, arson, sabotage, and occasional outbreaks of personal violence. These tactics effectively won small material gains against unfair landlords or was simply leverage and a tool of retaliation sharecroppers could use against abusive landlords. During World War I, Workers left the countryside in a mass exodus, dubbed the Great Migration, to take advantage of employment opportunities in sprawling urban centers of both the North and the South. To stop the bleeding in high-impacted areas, landowners were forced to adopt limited forms of mechanization to make up for the dwindling labor force and rising wages. The movement off the land came at a time when roads expanded while supply of affordable automobiles rose. This combination had a dramatic impact on rural mobility. In 1920, 
16,592 automobiles were owned and operated by Alabama farmers. Just a decade later, in 1930, that number ballooned to 73,634. For the first time, many smallholders and tenants who acquired vehicles were no longer beholden to the landlords and the plantation commissary. They could purchase supplies themselves at much lower prices in nearby urban centers. The revolution in transportation compelled landowners to furnish tenants in cash in lieu of credit lines at plantation commissaries and county stores to retain rural labor in the face of competitive wages offered in the cities. But after the crash of 1929, cash became a rare commodity and landlords resurrected the commissary system. The tenants' newly discovered freedom within transportation was snatched away again. Urbanist goal achieved. <laughs> Should have taken the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't more black sheriff robbers ride bikes? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is a tangent, so I'm just going to leave yeah. it here. But yeah. maybe understanding some of this history would help some of these guys with understanding uh, people's feelings about mm-hmm. stuff like bike lanes and shit in cities. But anyways, just leave it at that. Yeah. In 1930, the Communist Party began to emphasize liberation for black people. Equal rights for Negroes everywhere, a presidential campaign poster for the CPUSA reads. Self-determination for the black belt. Vote communist, the slogan demands. Despite the national slogan, faith in organizing the black belt among CP members in the South was dim. Kelly explains, quote, The 1930 draft program for Negro farmers in the southern states expressed the Central Committee's doubt as to the ability of black sharecroppers and tenants to create an autonomous radical movement. And a few months later, James Allen, editor of The Southern Worker, argued that only industrial workers were capable of leading tenants and sharecroppers because the latter lacked the collective experience of industrial labor. Maoism still hasn't come into vogue yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Aside from spouting rhetorical slogans, party organizers all but ignored the Black Belt during their first year in Birmingham. Indeed, their first taste of rural organizing was in northern Alabama among a small group of white tenant farmers who had asked the Trade Union Unity League for help obtaining government relief. Less than a year later, in January of 1931, an uprising of 500 sharecroppers in England, Arkansas, drew sharp attention from Southern communists and suddenly made the prospect of organizing the Black Belt more tangible. Party leaders from Birmingham rushed to issue a statement, making the case for Alabama farmers to follow Arkansas farmers' example, quote, call mass meetings in each township and on each large plantation. Set up farmers' relief councils at these meetings. Organize hunger marches on the towns to demand food and clothing from the supply merchants and bankers who have sucked you dry year after year. Join hands with the unemployed workers of the towns and with the organizations which are fighting with the same battle for bread. Suddenly, the southern worker became flooded with letters from poor black Alabama farmers. As Kelly notes, quote, A sharecropper from Waverly, Alabama, requested full information on this fight against starvation and pledged to, quote, do like the Arkansas farmers with the assistance of the communist organizers. A Shelby County tenant made a similar request, quote, 
We farmers in Vincent wish to know more about the Communist Party, an organization that fights for all farmers, and also to learn us how to fight for better conditions. Another farmer correspondent had already made plans to get a bunch together for the meeting, adding that poor farmers in his community were, quote, mighty close to the breaking point. There you go. Organize the countryside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It is no surprise that there was such a rousing response to the Communist Party's call to action from black sharecroppers. Debts were skyrocketing, while advances of food and cash were cut off. It didn't help that the city of Birmingham offered few alternatives and opportunities to escape rural poverty. The future of tenancy suddenly seemed uncertain. Sharecroppers still saw the value in individual rebellion, but the call for collective action resonated on a deeper level. Black farmers were ready to organize with the Communist Party. In rural Birmingham in 1934, ore miners at TCI, Republic Steel Corporation, the Slosh Schleffield Iron and Steel Company, and the Woodward Iron Company went on strike, demanding higher wages, shorter hours, and union recognition. The companies refused and countered with firing union members. Violence ensued between striking workers and company police leaving two strikebreakers dead, nine workers wounded. In an attempt to put down the militant labor strike, state troops were called in to intervene, but were unsuccessful. The minor strike turned into a war, met with gunfire and bombs exploding throughout the summer. After the intervention of the Secretary of Labor, Francis Perkins, Mine Mill and TCI reached an agreement. But Mine Mill's union remained unrecognized, while wages only marginally increased. In 1934, nearly 1,500 Birmingham laundry workers struck for wage increases. 250 packing house workers walked off their job in May. There was also wildcat strikes, which are where workers stopped work without the consent of their union. They just went for it. Yep. That exploded several New Deal relief projects. <laughs> Alabama also felt the impact of the West Coast waterfront strikes, which drew a few hundred Mobile longshoremen into the fray, and some 23,000 Alabama textile workers joined the national textile strike. In all, the state experienced at least 45 strikes involving 84,000 workers during the tumultuous year of 1934 alone. Millions of workers were striking militantly across the country during the 1930s, and not even the Jim Crow regimes of the South could contain the conflict. It appeared to many in the capitalist class that they were entering an open class war, that a potential working class revolution could be at hand. You say you want a revolution. Maybe that's what FDR was walking out to. (laughs) Well, don't you know that you could count me out? (laughs) Yeah, that was was the part where he... uh, Yeah. (laughs) Franklin Delano Roosevelt walked into this potentially revolutionary situation in 1933. Worker unrest was everywhere, and the economy, under the hands-off approach of Hoover, was in shambles. A skilled politician... Roosevelt set himself to the task of saving American capitalism, but what shape that program would take remained up in the air. Embarking on a record-setting pace of legislation, Roosevelt began crafting his New Deal. 
Despite the sometimes overly romantic portrayals given today of the New Deal, it was never a cohesive singular project. Rather, it was an ad hoc patchwork of policies that would jerk violently across the political spectrum. Roosevelt was a scion of one of New York's wealthiest and most storied families. As such, he approached policy opportunistically as a politician does, rather than politically as a figure of the left might. This meant that the politics of the New Deal were truly up for grabs. American political and business leaders in the press heaped praise on the fascists in Europe, particularly on Mussolini. Many openly called for Roosevelt to follow the fascist model. In a two-page spread titled The Three the World Watches, the New York Times favorably compared the New Deal to the recovery plans of Hitler and Mussolini. Fun story. In 2000, I think it came out in 2009 or 2010, David Leanhart of the New York Times, everybody's favorite fucking columnist in the business oh, yeah. section, yeah. had an article. It's titled like, it's like titled like Unsubtlety and Nuance or something. Oh, you know, you're never going to get a banger whenever an op-ed writer <laughs> says Unsubtlety and Nuance. Yeah. It fucking rocks. We'll put it in the suggested reading notes. Yeah. But basically, he's like, look, when people think about Nazi Germany, all they think about is like the Holocaust, the war, the racism. <laughs> what they don't think about is the economic recovery model that Hitler had. And guys, I think it's time we take a look at it, right? It's like gotta hand it to him. You gotta hand it to him. <laughs> By the way, this is a fun little bit of inside baseball. David Leinhardt's dad was like a fucking late 60s Maoist, by the way. So, what? It's yeah. always the kids. He's a fail son. <laughs> it's always the fail son. Red diaper baby fail son. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> another one another so, one as another dj one Cal would dust. say yeah. yeah never trust a red diaper baby that's the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so yeah the new york times was basically saying like this Mussolini guy let's give it a real look uh, <laughs> harper's magazine concluded in 1934 quote it is in the very nature of planned recovery its methods and its objectives that we find the tendency which, if taken to its logical conclusion, arrives at the fascist stage of economic control. Members of the Roosevelt administration openly expressed their admiration of Mussolini in particular. Advisor Rexford Tugwell, one of the funniest names in politics, <laughs> said... Get the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> yeah. He's also like a really important like white progressive figure, so you get him a lot in histories. Uh, it's just very hilarious. The motherfucker said Tugwell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so advisor Rexford Tugwell said of Italy after visiting Mussolini in 1934, quote, Italian fascism is the cleanest, neatest, and most effectively operating piece of social machinery I've ever seen. It makes me envious. And when General Hugh Johnson resigned as the chief of the National Recovery Administration, he invoked the, quote, shining name of Mussolini in his farewell speech. Roosevelt would have his ambassador to Italy, Breckenridge Long, a known supporter of the fascist social model, report directly to him as opposed to the State Department, and in private stated, quote, I am keeping in fairly close touch with that admirable Italian gentleman. A fine sir, if you will. <laughs> and it was funny. I, I'd mentioned this to you, Moody, at one point when we were talking about this episode, that the newspapers of the time are just replete, covered with this kind of coverage, right? Talking about how great Mussolini, like the West loved Mussolini. 
And it was just so funny that we, somebody, just some rando on Twitter, this randomly posted a New York Times article from this time period, 34, 35, of mm-hmm. Churchill, of Winston Churchill basically being like, you know that Mussolini guy? I'd like to tug him well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, you know like, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm tug on his well. <laughs> yeah, like, mm. I mean, it really is incredible. Uh, just amazing stuff. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess this is all to say that Roosevelt was negotiating really between the capitalist class and its growing desire for fascism. It's and it was a, as we said, it was a real desire for yeah. fascism, and he was negotiating that against a growing militant, potentially revolutionary working class. It is on this shaky ground that the New Deal began to be forged. His first project, the National Recovery Administration. Uh, also known as the NRA before that NRA that you know. (laughs) The mildly better NRA. Yeah. (laughs) Set up code councils populated by the captains of industry that restricted production and set minimum price requirements. It was designed to stabilize and solidify corporate power and predictably, the business leaders on each board set conditions so that their particular companies would thrive leading to another wave of consolidations. Historian Bernard Bellish writes, quote, The White House permitted the National Association of Manufacturers, the Chamber of Commerce, and allied businesses and trade associations to assume overriding authority. Indeed, private administration became public administration, and private government became public government, ensuring the marriage of capitalism with Satanism. Wait, wait, sorry, statism. <laughs> I like that though. Yeah. Damn, Bellish goes hard. <laughs> I was like, damn, bro. <sighs> Ensuring the marriage of capitalism with statism. At the time, Fortune magazine praised the NRA for writing, quote, the corporate state is to Mussolini what the New Deal is to Roosevelt just salivating at the mouth they fucking wanted it so bad like like i said if you read any of the mainstream press at the time they fucking want it they wanted mussolini like style corporatism so bad still it was a mixed bag programs like the civilian conservation corps and the works progress administration provided much needed work though always at lower wages than competing private firms the new deal led to a massive construction of public buildings parks and other important infrastructure On the other hand, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, the RFC, was created to distribute federal subsidies to business, doling out $15 billion in free money throughout the 1930s, a massive transfer of public wealth into private hands. The passage of the Wagner Act and the National Labor Relations Act guaranteed workers the right to organize and bargain with employers. It even banned some union-busting tactics from employers. But it also tied the labor movement to a system where the state is the arbiter of all labor disputes, a serious problem in a country dominated by capital. The Fair Labor Standards Act finally shortened the work week to 40 hours while also creating a minimum wage, but it also included special carve-outs for particular industries that were allowed to violate the act. By the way, one of those is the tobacco industry, which is allowed to use child labor at sub-minimum wage (laughs) to pick tobacco. Glad that <laughs> the cancer sticks aren't 
<laughs> just oh, it's Jesus, like, this is dude. an incredible country. This I country, mean, like, it, 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 it you, rocks. When you think like it, it is the gift that does keep on giving when you learn about this country, because you like when you just think it's over, like it just like just gives more, and and it's like actually like enlightening. Like you're like your eyes open. You're like wow. I thought I was ready for it all, and then and another an, another banger another banger down the road. another banger. <laughs> At best, the New Deal was meant to balance the power of labor and capital to stabilize the country in the middle of a crisis. As such, every program was subject to all the compromises and loopholes that plague such grand bargains. Programs created to protect workers such as Aid to Dependent Children, ADC, Old Age Assistance, OAA, Old Age Insurance, OAI, and the Fair Employment Practices Commission, FEPC, were handed over to corporate interests to run with predictable results. The ADC and OAA programs allowed state boards loaded with corporate representatives to define their own eligibility terms, ensuring that only white men would receive the program's benefits. The OAI, the Old Age Insurance Program, better known as Social Security, excluded half of the working population with its eligibility requirements, including three-fifths of fully employed blacks and four-fifths of fully employed black women. Three-fifths of the total excluded workers were women. Debates over who could receive Social Security even took on a specifically sexist tone as women's benefits were slashed since they could, quote, cook for themselves. And... (laughs) Oh, my God, dude. New Deal planners be like 1980s comedians. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they really do. They were really, they were really hit in the eighties on stage. I don't, yeah, I don't think it, they'd bomb. We have to stop the New Deal planner to nineteen eighties comedian pipeline. Yeah, I mean, like you know, y- you would think like when they're presenting the New Deals, the first word that comes out of their mouth is "fellas." <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was really strange of them to begin the text of the Social Security Act with, "Are you tired of your bitch wife?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She all nabbing in your ear and shit. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. And plans were debated regarding the prevention of, quote, designing women, stealing the OAI of old fools. Predictably, Jim Crow in the South and the profits to be made by forcibly depressing black people's wages were practices that would not be challenged by the New Deal. Roosevelt made concessions to Southern Democrats that allowed them to apply New Deal funds selectively so as to not upset the segregationist regime. The importance of segregation to American capitalism was well understood. As a representative of Carnegie Steel stated in 1934, quote, As far as I am concerned, I believe the Negro has been a lifesaver to the steel company. When we have had labor disputes or when we have needed more men for expansion, we have gone to the South and brought up thousands of them. I don't know what this company would have done without Negroes. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) That's just like, just average quarterly earnings call is like, uh, (laughs) is that. (laughs) 
uh, people ask about stonks, this is the reply <laughs> they get. Yeah. <laughs> FDR's Labor Secretary, Francis Perkins, would comment about the conservatism of the New Deal after FDR's death. Quote, I am certain that he had no dream of great changes in the economic or political patterns of our life. And indeed, the New Deal did more to save the old economic system than to create a new one. Historian Howard Zinn would sum up the success of the New Deal as follows, quote, When the New Deal was over, capitalism remained intact. The rich still controlled the nation's wealth, as well as its laws, courts, police, newspapers, churches, colleges. Enough help had been given to enough people to make Roosevelt a hero to millions. But the same system that had brought the Depression and crisis, the system of waste, of inequality, of concern for profit over human need, remained. So... The question is, right, we've gone over, you know, in this discussion of the New Deal, we'll start at the end and we'll work our way back. Yeah. But this question yeah. of the New Deal, right, is why is Roosevelt's legacy remembered so much more fondly by, say, liberals on the left, although I think liberals have been <laughs> jettisoned at this point. <laughs> yeah, into the stratosphere. Yeah. I remember so much more fondly by the left, say, than like labor historians. And I think this comes to a key point about the 1930s and the New Deal and stuff and about how we understand history and the function of history as a system of, I'm going to say the word, propaganda that does work <laughs> yeah. very effectively, actually, is that many of the things that we consider really good and a lot of very good things came out of the 1930s uh, legislatively and whatnot a lot of what we consider to be good about the 1930s was essentially forced on this country by the labor movement. Right. And what history class has done is it's transferred our admiration of those successes. It's transferred the, you know, the cause of that success from the labor movement to the man that is FDR. Right. You know, and we place that on him as opposed to crediting what we should do is just ourselves. The working yeah. class did that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's there's this general myth uh, within U.S. history and just America in general that there's, especially like when it comes to uh, decisions and power, is that it is just a fully, and I, mean, I guess there's like layers to impact on why we think this way, but there it's someone who is president just has this vision and if they actually implement it it is their idea and they execute on it and if it's not their idea it's from their team and there's mm -hmm. no underlying forces underneath that are pushing and pulling and actually leveraging what you know the president is grappling with grappling with you know a capitalist class that wants to go into fascism right like that it, it's not like he could just ignore that that is something that actually is a genuine force media's behind him um a lot of you know interest capital flight uh threats there there's real leverage for the american empire that they have to consider uh same thing with labor if labor just stops working or like keeps on you know like fighting the good fight um that could actually one it's a threat to how the capitalist system runs which uh fdr is interested in maintaining um for sure as president you are uh president of the united states at least literally your um, only job that is your job. <laughs> That's you your know? one job that you have to do. <laughs> yeah. So um, labor in a big way had leverage there too. And I think one thing that we're not used to is the latter part of that equation. Because right now, 
Uh, we are used to capital leveraging all of their power, but unlike the 1930s now, we actually do not have the labor movement that was there. Radical labor movement that was pushing for these uh, demands. And it basically came to this like compromise of extremely organized labor that was actually able to go up against capital and wage a fight. And I think if this is not like studied and if we just go off of what we're used to today, it's even like hard to wrap our minds around because I think for the past however many decades, um, the U.S. working class has been completely steamrolled and, you know, uh, yeah. stick around to figure out why that is. But um, the difference and why actually things got passed and why no matter how many pundits you'll hear saying that Joe Biden will be the <laughs> FDR yeah. of, of the yeah. 21st century, you know, um, even if Joe Biden wanted to, which, by the way, he doesn't. Um, <laughs> Those, those reforms will never come about unless there is a radical, large, national-scaled, and really preferably internationally um, organized labor movement that is has a coherent vision and pushing demands um, and using opportunities to push demands on uh, heads of state. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe somebody might listen to our sort of description of the New Deal and say, you know, why bring up all the Mussolini stuff? <laughs> why are you making this man look like this? And our point is to say, as you're sort of kind of, you know, bringing up, right, is the 1930s is a time where the doors open. Everything is really up in the air. It's really in flux. It's a period where great change is really possible. And Roosevelt is, you know, the reason why he's an important figure in history is that unlike literally almost all presidents in the United States. Roosevelt is a actually like astute politician, like mm -hmm. who can under like one understands his role in the world and under like understands how to effectuate his role and effectuate change. Like he he sees the world and actually can understand it. And he's bound by forces outside of him, right? He's he's not just a godlike figure pressing buttons, right? Yeah. Exactly. He has the power of the capitalist class who's trying to bound him on all sides while at the same time demanding that he save them, right? Because the capitalist class is the drowning victim that when you go to save them, immediately starts shoving your head under yeah. water. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? um, but he's also bound by this, you know, potentially revolutionary working class movement that people are really panicking about, right? And part of that panic is the fact that the Soviet Union does exist, right? So mm -hmm. it's not like they can look at that and go, oh, fat luck to those guys, whatever, right? Like, because it's like, oh, because now, because it's a real example of it, they're like, oh, shit, that could happen, you yeah. know? So how do we contain this, right? And the problem is, is that containing, doing what you need to do to contain the working class at this situation is going to piss off the capitalist class, even though it's actively saving them. And so right. it leads to hilarious situations. The capitalist class actually gets the Supreme Court to overturn the National Recovery Act, right, in 1935. <laughs> and the reason they do it is even though the National Recovery Act is literally for them, like in labor, it actually kind of hates it. They, they refer to it as the National Runaround Act and things like that. But like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's a stipulation in Section 7A that basically says that, like, you know, in, you know, firms receiving money via the National Recovery Act, like that labor can form unions, right? Mm. And so 
the Catalyst class like gets the Supreme Court to basically toss it out. Now they think this is going to be a full frontal assault on on the New Deal. Generally, it ends up not quite working out that way because you know Roosevelt sort of outflanks them. But literally, this is if you guys remember that meme from about a year ago. This is those gun owners who like take the safety off their gun and like stick it against their dick while they like, drive down a bumpy road. <laughs> you know, like it's literally that. Like this is what the Catalyst class is doing. And the thing is, the capitalist class, it's because of its own ideological strictures, the ideological prison it lives in, you know, they're willing to drive the car off the cliff most of the time, right? And they require figures to come out uh, who are willing to let the working class save them, essentially. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and Roosevelt sort of is that figure, right? He is... He is the product of a very intense class struggle that's happening in the 1930s. And bringing up the stuff about Mussolini, bringing up the stuff about, you know, potential revolutionary forces on the other side, too, is to say everything is possible in this moment. Yep. You know, from our perspective, history is done and it's written. But from the perspective of the time, it's all there. And it it's all, all there. Actual existing communism was there. Actual existing fascism was there, and it was, and they were a force. It wasn't. It wasn't something small. It was something very real. Something that Westerners, even across the country in the U.S., could look at tangibly. Capital could look at tangibly and say, "We can do this right now if we wanted to." And like yeah. that, to to say to say that out loud, and for people to just intuitively say yes we can like that's just like obvious uh, i mean that fundamentally that just changes how people just even approach um organizing that and changes the leverage that certain classes have over one another mm-hmm. too and yeah. you know as we go on too it's why you know i think you know if you're listening to this show you're likely you know living in the west or especially in america um, you know, we're typically even like used to our left academics um, making a caveat saying, well, I denounce the Soviet Union and their crimes and their, you know, uh, atrocities against humanity, whatever. Right. Uh, after then, like defending like the idea of like socialism or communism and stuff, but always with the preface. But, you know, the existence of the Soviet Union in itself um less like all of the amazing scientific achievements um, and the material structures that they were dealing with at the time, which were, um, you know, immense. Um, The very existence of the Soviet Union changed the game for the rest of the working class around the world against the fight, the global fight against capitalism. Um, Mm -hmm. Their presence and their ability to industrialize in the way that they did to become uh, a force that's on par and competing with the G7, you know, nations, right? Like the top imperial nations, uh, France, Germany, uh, the United States, Britain, um, all uh, Italy, right? Spain. It becomes, it becomes not a question of, oh, where are you going to go? But it's a question of how do we stop this from actually happening? And when there is no alternative presented, like we are at now, um, those doors are slammed shut. So mm. one one existence within a, you know, one country's existence of communism, one country's existence of of fascism too. On the other side, um, has enormous implications around the world for the working class and the capitalist class. Yeah, yeah. Both classes had a model that they could move to, 
and that opened up opportunities for them to make that move. And, you know, the to your point about the the existence of the Soviet Union being, you know, a form of radical inspiration itself. I mean, why do people think the U.S. is so obsessed with destroying Cuba? Mm hmm. Like, does anybody really think that Cuba is going to cause a national security crisis in the United States? The reason why they destroy Cuba is that it's a bad example for the world. They, uh, uh, like, they constantly embarrassing that, they can do that. Yeah. that, like, Cuba can exist in that way. Have mm -hmm. um, now, I mean, in amidst, uh, you know, COVID, as recording this episode, uh, higher life expectancy than the U.S. Yeah. by a couple <laughs> of years now. Um, you develop their own vaccine all under intense sanctions, right? I mean, like, this is this is somewhere that's like a country that is so uh, resilient and its people are organized in a fundamentally different way within a global capitalist system that is mm -hmm. dominated by imperial forces like the U.S. And they're still able to thrive. This little, you know, country that is right, island that is like right next to the U.S. is able to do that. That is, uh, that completely delegitimizes the the economic base of the U.S., the fundamental imperial state of the U.S., it it crushes its entire integrity and its facade that is selling to its people. When it says to, this is what the U.S. is really afraid of, it says to other Latin American nations, you don't have to be a part of this system, this capital, global capitalist system that the United States is the guarantor of. Yes. You can break out of the imperial, you know, rat maze. And yeah. And that's where the obsession begins. <laughs> exactly right. And, and you know, if um, it's no surprise that just a couple decades after the 1917 revolution, uh, which formed the uh, USSR, uh, just, you know, a couple decades after, when, during decolonization, it's no surprise that the revolutionaries, most of them identified as Marxist-Leninists, right? Yeah. Vladimir Lenin, the person who... Um, you know, was part of the Bolshevik Party who seized uh, Russia and created the USSR. Um, it, it, those decolonial movements, and then, you know, after like hundreds of years of decolonization, there was a genuine model of how to organize a party, how to organize a country not within the realm of colonialism, within neocolonialism and capitalism, a way that is just fundamentally different. And that that just doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's really no surprise that a lot of African revolutionaries of that, um, you know, like Fidel Castro himself, Thomas Sankara, uh, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're all kind of like organized under that line. And, yeah. you know. I mean, even guys there. maybe we don't see as uh, like, you know, revolutionary communist leaders. Nelson Mandela, you Nelson know? Mandela, absolutely. <laughs> you know, basically affirm like, "Hey, the Soviet Union was actually good," kind of guy. Like, you know, so that's the thing. I mean, people in the U.S. Uh, consider that maybe you have blinkers on you that are created by being from the U.S. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, speaking of that, I, the example of this real life thing that suddenly makes a political ideology tangible political goals tangible. I mean, that's going to create tension within organizing itself. Yeah. And, you know, the Congress of industrial organizations, right? The CIO, you know, members of the communist party USA were the most active militant, you know, best organized within it, but it didn't mean that there wasn't tension, <laughs> In the yeah. CIO between the regular CIO trade or unionists and the CPUSA organizers. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and we're talking about basically like the CIO is usually just used as the blanket term of like just radical labor, the radical labor, mm-hmm. limping in with, you know, the communists and everything. So we're not even talking about like the split between the AFL and the CIO, which do have immense differences while still being a part of labor. But even as a subset of that, um, you know, communists definitely were like very active in the CIO. There was also, you know, like more um, traditional people who were coming from AFL. CIO was split off. From AFL, so you know mm-hmm. they're all a part of that, uh, you know, system in general, especially within leadership. And you know, before uh, the CIO was even split off, uh, there's this man named John L. Lewis, and John L. Lewis was uh, basically like within like CIO leadership, and the Communist Party um, saw him as like their arch nemesis in a lot of ways. And like, you know, like they approached it differently. And like, you know, not just because you're radical in labor does not necessarily mean you're organized, uh, you know, within communist formations or, you know, uh, or are even pro-communist to begin with. Uh, There was still a lot of anti-communism. The idea of purging was a big thing. Uh, definitely prevalent in the AFL, but it, you know, like seeped over to the CIO where there had to be, you know, internal battles and actual sacrifices. And so the communist party did something pretty incredible where um, they said they were kind of looking at the situation where they're like, okay, our arch nemesis is running the CIO, something that is exciting, but we fucking hate this guy. We would rather him like not exist in anywhere in our, like in our organizing space. But on the flip side of that, it's like this can be a big opportunity to, you know, push the labor movement forward in a more radical direction. And so rather than just say, fuck it, we're out, they actually decided to organize in the CIO, uh, gain some like leadership ranks, but mostly just like, you know, uh, be like rank and file members. But in a disciplined way, they agreed to sometimes downplay their membership or just like not really mention it when they're doing organizing within the CIO, right. Or within like trade union, like organizing, they'll go back with their party and like, you know, compare notes, but there were some sacrifices that had to be made on like how outwardly like um, antagonistic they were like within CIO, just so basically like sacrificing their complete like 100% ideals so that they can actually make good material gains for for workers mm-hmm. and the movement and the and as you know as a bright product for communism itself um they also i mean to you know appease uh the CIO they demonstrated his loyalty by abolishing the communist shop units and newspapers as well to show that you know they were they wanted to be unified with the CIO and i feel like this story um especially like the story of sacrifice within the communist party mm-hmm. does go against a little bit of the narrative of what we hear about you know people on the left or what they call the far left or the communists mm-hmm. right um who you hear they are puritans um idealists like people who mm-hmm. just like want to be correct instead of like uh instead of actually do things or reach across yeah. the aisle uncompromising <laughs> yeah know. right yeah which, I mean, when you look at this history, you could actually see if you, and, and it makes sense because communism, you know, you usually, you approach it from a Marxist lens of materialism, right? And so when you analyze the world from material conditions instead of like utopian ideas, right, which is really what was prevalent before Marxism came about was like the socialist thinking of utopia, 
analyzing material conditions and saying um, what would be best in this moment. And that comes with a lot of sacrifice, but, you know, I think it shows that that is actually quite the opposite of the, you know, narratives that you usually um, hear. So that was like, I think, an interesting learning uh, for me to learn about, uh, you know, the Communist Party and how they actually, you know, worked within trade unions. And there was still risk because they're not a monolith. When we say mm-hmm. organized labor, yes, they are. They have a shared interest against capital, right? They represent workers, right? It is workers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, forming together. But within those orgs, just like within organized capital, they do like organized capital has shared goals, but they also have their own interests mm-hmm. that are against other capitalist interests, right? And um, you know, you have to you have to deal with that. And especially in organized labor, there's a lot of uh, different uh, opinions on which way to go and like how to do that. And it becomes complex and it becomes uh, a little more nuanced once you get into the actual internal workings and like zoom in from that macro lens Mm -hmm. of usually view things out of. Well, and organized groups use things like tactics and strategy, right? So mm-hmm. they are making tactical decisions for strategic ends. But yeah, I mean, to your point, the general portrayal of particularly communists and the left or in organized labor is that they're sectarian and, you know, will broach no compromise or whatever. Uh, I would argue that that image comes from how communists deal with capitalists. Yeah. It's amazing how we then all internalize the capitalist vision of who the <laughs> Communist Party is. But if you're to actually, I, I, I don't think that uh, it really takes a deep study. I mean, any even cursory study of the of American labor and the American left uh, reveals that it's the communists who get purged from these organizations, not the other way around. Communists purging yeah. other people. Yeah. Right? Why, why, why is it that they're <laughs> most, somehow the most sectarian and the ones that seemingly get uh, backstabbed, uh, completely purged, uh, blacklisted? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's not because that they're, you know, annoying, I'm sure, you know, well, um, the, the whole thing is that they want to participate and the story and of America the, is not allowing them to participate, yeah, but you cannot uh, participate anymore. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, you've been too successful. Cannot participate yeah. That, and I think the thing is too, is the complaint of people in the CIO, which by the way, is going to be the complaint of, you know, we'll, we'll fast forward to other organizations, but the complaint within SDS, the complaint within a lot of left organizations, the complaint with the communists or about the communists in the CIO isn't that they're destroying the organization and that they're making the organization smaller or fracturing it. The complaint is they're growing the organization yeah. and making it more <laughs> yeah. radical by this is where the definition of destroying really comes into play. Right? Mm-hmm. Like what does it mean to destroy something? Is that a, a question of political content or is that a question of like size and influence? And right. You know, uh, the, the communists are actively and rapidly building the CIO, which is making a lot of the leadership very nervous. Now, John L. Lewis who comes from the mine workers is not, uh, you know, we, you know, we're not going to, tra- we don't want to portray him as some sort of right wing weirdo. Like, yeah, he's yeah, far yeah. to the left of like, he's, a, he's in the CIO and the AFL. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's just, you know, these are the divisions in America, right? Like, <laughs> you know, and this is also the effect of anti communism and red baiting. This is what it does to people's brains. This is the effect of dun, 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 propaganda on mm-hmm. the public mind is that it causes these fissures that. 
you could have somebody say, I have to get rid of this group because they're sect- you know, sectarians, uh, while not acknowledging or seeing the irony of you doing what sectarians supposedly do, which is getting rid of a group because you don't like their politics. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, um, the, like the AFL, like on, on the subject of like propaganda, um, it, it was just so, so intense. I mean, the AFL, like literally published in uh, an editorial um, called the Red Menace, which yeah. describes specifically Birmingham's communists. So you know, Birmingham, Alabama, like rural Alabama, as quote emissaries of the Moscow cult, mm. who have all the wisdom of the serpent, but little, if any, of the harmless of the dove. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> like what? Like what do you even say to that? You know. Yeah. Um, Another and, another one. I mean, like the Birmingham Trades Council opened a probe, probing radical activity within the labor movement. Like, I mean, it was it was so explicit. Popular. Yeah, it was so explicit. Like when they say like, oh, it's destroying the organization. They mean like it's getting more radical. and We don't like that. And it, you could just openly investigate radical activity. Right. Um, and so their conclusion to this investigation was this quote. Communists in Alabama with bona fide credentials from the Russian Communist Party. Uh, <laughs> help us. Credentials. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they say, like, you know, with an eye towards like the upcoming like uh, convention, the advisory committee appealed to like local, state, and national AFL leaders to, quote, help us fight to get rid of the Russian directed communists. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, I love to think it was true that the Bolshevik Party had it so together and that things were going They're so giving well. Them way the too much Union, credit, man. That they yeah. were that they were also calling the shots all around <laughs> yeah, the world. You have. <laughs> but I mean, it's one of those I things. I fucking wish, dude. Well, that I mean, it's it's the usual ploy of being like, this is actually foreign influence. Nobody yeah. here actually believes it, despite the fact that everybody is, you know, yeah, you wouldn't be talking about like, it. Literally like the most it. exploited people in yeah. you it, know, our part that, of the Communist Party. Yeah, it's partially that, and it's also partially the, you know, overlaying of Jewish conspiracy, you know, onto mm-hmm. what is now becoming a Cold War narrative of yep. an international cabal, you know. Yeah, I mean, like, um, what what I just kind of, like, read is, like, the, uh, is the start of this Cold War narrative, which we're going to get into, right? Like, it, it, the Cold War really was, and we'll talk about this more during the Cold War episode, like, trust, we will get to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that culmination to the cold war and that narrative, it took decades to really teach and you're seeing already this like red baiting and red scaring, um, you know, happening, basically making something that is really popular and organic, um, in the United States seem like the, like the schneveling Jew from, uh, you know, the international order is uh, controlling all of these, all of these. And this is the implication, these dumbass, illiterate black people, mm-hmm. right? These dumbass, illiterate working class people, these sharecroppers, these like white mind workers, all of them are dumb and they're just gullible and they'll believe anything. And the shoveling yep. Jew is calling the shots. Yeah, yeah. It's coming in and manipulating them, and it's an act of paternalism to come and help them. Yeah. And 
And I think they could say, I mean, we talked about this tension between the CIO and the CPUSA, right? Mm-hmm. And this tension, again, because we're talking about a time where the door is open, everything's up in the air. Like people are actively on the ground making decisions about where and what this country is going to be. And that tension's in the black community in the South too, right? It's not yeah. a monolith, you know? Um, yeah. Opinion. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even just like if you just want to even scope it down to Birmingham, Alabama, you know, there's, uh, you know, black sharecroppers, which definitely are, you know, extremely poor, extremely exploited. But, you know, there's other classes of black people too, organized classes of black people. Um, The black middle class, which is usually represented by the NAACP, had significantly different opinions um, than Mm you know, the uh, black sharecroppers getting organized into the Communist Party, where they too were being like, these white communist outside agitators are coming in and, you know, manipulating these, again, illiterate, dumb, like, uh, you know, sharecroppers, uh, people who are less than me, basically. Mm. Um, They're getting uh, controlled because they don't subscribe to their vision and something that they actively oppose. The black middle class definitely opposed the communist party. A lot of what they believed, even in, you know, vague terms, they just were ideologically against that vision and instead adopted the vision more of like Booker T Washington, right? Where, you know, it's aspirational. Let's work harder than the white people, right? Like, let's like, (laughs) let's prove to them that we can actually do their shit better than they can, you know, like let's play their game and beat them at it basically. Right. And that's like, that's a very different mindset to view the world from. That's a very different mindset to wake up day to day thinking Mm -hmm. what your mission is in this world, seeing your bonds and solidarity, right? Like there isn't implied solidarity just within the black community, just itself. It's not a monolith. It's actually, it's very racist to just say that, you know, every black person is the same. There are objective one, like class contradictions and class differences between uh, the black community, even in Birmingham, Alabama, rural Birmingham, Alabama. There's also the same type of guys that you see today, you know, (laughs) like when, when I'm like reading about these guys, I'm like, Oh, these are just like the rise and grind people who like watch like Gary V videos to hype them up about like, you know, like um, aspirational passive income streams, like eventually. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, there's always those types of people. Right. There's no, no like <laughs> um, and there's like there's people who could be organized into the Communist Party, but, you know, have no real prior interest in that or even like, you know, really have like context. And that's where political education comes in. Right. And so you actually have to talk and relate to them on a personal level and stuff. There's a lot of different um, types of people, even like within uh, the black community, especially in that time, who had different visions of, despite being a shared, like if you are black, you are experiencing anti-black racism. You're experiencing, you're not having a good time in the U.S. at that time. Yeah. But there's levels to this shit. And there's also different approaches on how you respond to that trauma. Mm-hmm. And but some how you is a think lot. You're going to get out of it, right? Yeah. How you, I mean, like, the idea is we're going to escape from it. Even if, even if, like, you uh, approach it from, oh, we're going to out capitalist the white people um, mm-hmm. and do it better, that the premise there is they're going to escape from where they are now because where they are now fucking sucks, right? Yeah. But there's many different paths and, uh, you know, options that people can try to pursue there's not just one clear like oh for sure 
everything's up in the open. And that's why like organizing was so important because if you don't, someone else is going to eat your lunch, Yeah, you know? Yeah. This is why spontaneity never works. Right. Yep. Is that nothing is obvious. Nothing is just, Oh, everybody will just clearly choose this because people are products of complex systems of socialization of propaganda, etc. Right. They have complex motives and all these things. And we're talking about the black community, but this is true across all communities. Right. And mm-hmm. It doesn't take, you know, capital is very good at romancing people into thinking that they individually can escape if they give up on us, you know, yeah, right? Right. And if you sell out everyone else, you specifically can make it. It's it's the it's the Jay Z basically. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, you can give it a million examples, uh, but you know, I mean, look, we also all know just individuals who literally think they're like one crypto transaction away from being, you know. One of my favorite stories is when I was at Texas Tech uh, and I was taking poli-sci classes. Texas Tech is a fourth, maybe fifth tier college in the United States. I mean, below like most local community colleges and major cities. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's great, right? And, um, you know, it's it's a football team that's not very good, but has a college attached to it. and. You know, I'd be taking political science classes with these like moron kids who are like the children of like car dealership owners in Dallas, you know, <laughs> and because they're it, like because they think they're going to business school or they think, you know, they could become, you know, whatever lawyers or whatever. They all legitimately believed. I remember one time in class we we're having some debate and I said, you guys act as if you really think you're going to be the head of like a Fortune 500 company. And they stared at me with this like kind of mouth agape. Because they did. Yeah. They, they did it, believe they that. Did. Yeah. No matter how absurd it is to think that that would be the case. Yeah, right. You know? So, I mean, capitalism is able to romance people, you know, against all reason all the time, which is why you actually have to organize, you know? Yep. And the CPUSA, during this time, you know, we brought it up, and, and we'll actually have the actual document and the, and the suggested readings. But the CPUSA had this thing in 1922 at the Third National where they talked about the black question, right? Mm, mm. And basically the summation of their argument was, which was, you know, this is important for the American left, was that, hey, we should put special emphasis on organizing black workers. And the reason they said this was that black workers, because of their position as being super exploited in America, would be a critical backbone of any sort of actual functioning American labor movement. Now, the key point of this is they didn't think that black workers were especially radical because of some genetic thing. Like they didn't didn't think that there's some gene, right? That's like, Oh, (laughs) some gene that makes every black person wake up and go, (laughs) go, that's, that's stealing my surplus value. Yeah. <laughs> the Hell point that no. yeah the point they were trying to make as organizers is look these these people who are the most kicked in the teeth population in your country their existence is there for them to be super exploited for super profits to be reaped from their labor by just keeping them in the fucking dirt you know mm-hmm. and all the structures that are required to keep them there, the extra policing, the extra violence, you know, all that stuff, the telling them that they're stupid, the not giving them education, all this kind of shit, right? All that means 
that they're probably not especially wed to this system. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like more than the average person, they're probably going to respond to the message. Hey, do you think America kind of (laughs) sucks? Yeah. (laughs) They're probably more likely to say yes than the average guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And essentially what the CPUSA is saying, and this is very basic organizing stuff that I feel like, on the left today, because the left is, is, is too heavy on intellectuals and not heavy enough. Yeah. On <laughs> yeah. Uh, likes to over-intellectualize. But what they're really saying is that go get the low-hanging fruit. Get mm-hmm. the people that are more likely to say, I don't like this system, and organize them. Because you can. Yeah. Right? Stop trying to do the impossible. Stop trying to push the stone up the hill. You're not Kamala Harris in the Biden administration. <laughs> like, take the take the win. Go get the win, right? Yeah. And this is born, of course, of the Russian Revolution's experience with Jewish workers. I mean, in the West, when they said that the Bolsheviks were riddled with Jews, they weren't wrong. Like, there's lots of Jews in the Bolshevik yeah. Party. But the explanation of that isn't a conspiracy. The explanation of that is the Jews were the worst treated people in all of fucking Russia. (laughs) Yeah. They were treated like absolute fucking shit. So when Bolsheviks went to them and were like, Hey, I think this czar guy kind of sucks and we could do better. uh, They were more responsive to that message. And I think in the U S you know, we try and over intellectualize this. We turn it into some weird race argument or something like that. The reality is you got to go where people are exploited, Mm -hmm. you know, exploited the most. And you need to talk to those people. I know it's scary. It's all those things, but you got to do it. Yep. You got to be out of your comfort zone. And, you know, and I think the scariest part about that, whether I think we would want to admit it or not, is that not only does organizing change others, not only can organizing have the potential to change the world and, you know, the lives that we live, but also on a very fundamental level will change you too when you do it. Yep. And that's, you know, and that's scary, but it's something you have to, you know, look at as a as a positive because it does change you. Yeah. You have to see this. It's going to change you for the better. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of preconceived notions that you have that whether you acknowledge them or not are there and they're like willing in at you. And this is your chance to to leave them by the wayside through practice. Right. Well, on that note, uh, that I felt was like a touch optimistic. Wow. Yeah, I know. Actually, I love that. Let's go ahead and crush that. Yeah. (laughs) Y'all thought thought we were leaving you (laughs) on a positive note. Let's go. So we're going to leave you with this excerpt from Labor's Untold Story. (laughs) Uh, It's a it's their their sort of final thoughts on their discussion of the Roosevelt era. And uh, they leave with a a bit of an ominous note. (laughs) The four-year unity of the CIO against red-baiting to be continued for five more years after the interruption in 1940-41 to was not only the formula for CIO success. It played a vital role in advancing the larger coalition, itself an alliance of left and center. That was the New Deal supported by the Negro people, the farmers, labor, white-collar workers, and small businessmen. Under the leadership of the CIO, these powerful groups also rejected red baiting and moved forward with labor gain and enforced the Social Security Act, the minimum wage law, unemployment compensation, and a whole series of substantial gains for the common people. 
But the men of Wall Street did not give up after the Red Scare that failed. There'll be another time in other days for another attempt to destroy the labor movement. The memory of Hitler's monopoly state, without trade unions and without the break of democratic opposition, remained to haunt them long after Hitler was no more. Mr. Prentice of the National Association of Manufacturers continued to talk about the advantages of some form of disguised fascistic dictatorship. Neither he nor his colleagues could forget that there had been a time under Coleridge and Hoover when the most prominent of labor leaders did their bidding by shouting, Red! That time might come again. <laughs> Trouble ahead, folks. Mm. <laughs> um. I'm in danger, what <laughs> Ralph Wiggum would say. Yep. Well, on that note, we'll see you all next week where we're going to be talking about chapter 10. Uh, uh, and it's basically the one on the New Deal. And we're going to be talking about the psychosis that the crisis of capitalism puts on everyone. Most importantly, yes. the capitalist class. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. See you then. The money's not to be on the cows, not to be his freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate. Dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de space.